The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Our guest today is David J. Pristash, a carbon dioxide expert. David is an independent researcher who has a BBA, EMBA, and graduate GE management program credentials. He's a retired U.S. Army captain and was wounded in Vietnam. He's a member of Beta Gamma Sigma, who has eight patents. David is based in Brecksville, Ohio. So welcome to the program, David. Thank you. So David, you had an opening statement concerning the temperature and carbon dioxide, things like that. So the floor is yours. All right, thank you. The climate of the planet is a variable and has never been a constant geologically. It has ranged from 54 degrees F Fahrenheit to 72 degrees F, with the average being around 63 degrees Fahrenheit. The current estimated global temperature is around 59 degrees F, which is four degrees Fahrenheit under the geological average. We are still actually warming after the little ice age some 300 years ago. Recently, a climate clock was created on a building in Union Square, New York City, which shows in digital numbers across the face of the building how many years, days, hours, minutes, and seconds we have until we hit the temperature limit caused by CO2. It currently gives us six years and some days till doomsday, sometimes in 2027 or 2028. When after that, it is too late to fix anything, it's the end. So with hysterical outlooks, over another degree and a half of warming is ridiculous. We are in one of the coldest geological eras of the entire Earth's history. In the late 50s and 60s, concerns over the environmental development, mostly over pollution from power generation, which was acid rain, but not limited to that. There was also a concern over increasing amounts of CO2 being put into the atmosphere. In 1958, NOAA started to measure CO2 in Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii. Those values are posted on the NOAA website each month and are accurately measured. The initial values were around 280 part per million, 
and the more current ones are running near 420 parts per million. For some political reason, back in the late 60s and through the early 80s, the Europeans thought carbon dioxide was a problem. So the, in the U.S. in 1979, formed an ad hoc committee in the National Academy of Sciences to examine the issue of climate change from carbon dioxide. NASA currently publishes the estimated world temperature once a month. Temperatures had been collected worldwide back to the time of the Civil War, but they represented a local temperature, not a global temperature. And there'll be more on that later. Over the planet, but the vast majorities are in North America and the EU. Very few countries not in that group have the same number of reporting stations per population as do the Americas and the Europeans. NASA, NASA takes those temperatures, runs them through a software program, and then adjusts all the temperatures to be at sea level. Then they estimate the temperature in all the locations where there are no temperature collection stations and add that in. Lastly, since there are a few stations in the world's ocean, which comprises 71% of the surface area of the planet, they estimate that and add that in. NASA calls this entire process homogenization, whatever that means. After the run, they publish many different data sets using this data. The one I use is called the Land Ocean Temperature Index, L-O-T-I, and it is available as a table of monthly temperatures going back to 1880. There are a lot of problems with the method used, but it's all we have. In 2009, Anthony Watts published an analysis of the NOAA temperature reporting stations in the United States. The majority of those stations did not meet NOAA's published standards, indicating that the output that NASA published is not as accurate as one would think it would be. Let me just start, David, by asking an obvious question that uh, I'm astounded that the government and environmental zealots were ever able to convince the public that greater amounts of carbon dioxide were a bad thing. I mean, every kid learns in school about photosynthesis, the need for sun and, and water, and carbon dioxide for plants to grow. So they chose one of the most wonderful things about our planet to demonize and have been successful at it. What, what are your thoughts just on that basic idea of how they have succeeded in making the wonders of our planet into something so bad that as you say in New York City, they can post a clock saying that if we don't stop producing more carbon dioxide, it's the end of life as we know it. It's, it's so totally absurd, it boggles my mind. <laughs> well, it definitely boggled my mind when I first got into the subject, basically in the time frame around uh, 2005, at the time, I was working on a, uh, a fuel cell, a miniature fuel cell project for the uh, Department of Defense. At the same time, there was a uh, conference in, uh, held in Cleveland, Ohio at, in, at Case. And uh, a friend of mine and I went to it. 
And it had a number of government officials, basically, from Washington. And they were talking about the problem with uh, CO2. It was really a strange conference. It was like they were trying to tell us something, but they couldn't say it because there was a lot of couched information. So it always bothered me that why were they kind of telling us something, but yet not telling us something, if you know what I mean. And so what I did is I started to research climate change. I found a petition project at the time, which was going around looking for uh, the signature of qualified people on climate. And when I looked at the petition and everything that contained in it, I mean, it showed that there was nothing to be afraid of. So I kept digging and digging and digging, and that's what got me started in the project. That was the Oregon Science and Medicine project that I was a party to. Uh, We were able to get 30,000 names to sign a statement that we thought might, you know, head off the bad guys at the past, so to speak, uh, by writing a very succinct statement that there was no downside to carbon dioxide at all. In fact, I'm not sure if we had it in our initial statement, but the closer we looked at it, uh, the more problem was that uh, we had very little carbon dioxide. And when you dig into it, you find out that uh, for plants to survive, they need 150 parts per million CO2. And uh, at the beginning of World War II, we were down to 280, which really was perilously close. And so we should now be celebrating with the second industrial revolution that we've increased the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from 280 parts per million to about 420 today. So we're talking all good news. We should be celebrating this every day. And yet people, frankly, with evil intent that want to control the world every day, uh, badger the public into thinking uh, we're going to hell in the handbasket before carbon dioxide. Now, I, I, I really believe there's a fatigue factor in here and that people are going to uh, start believing less and less of it. I've written widely Uh, You know, they started with the Paris Accord, uh, a long term plan to eliminate fossil fuel emissions and drive down carbon dioxide and theoretically uh, reducing the average uh, planet temperature, which you described earlier. Uh, And then they meet every year to to discuss this. And as we are speaking right now, they're in Glasgow, Scotland, 25,000 low-level bureaucrats living high off the hog, having meetings to tell the world that wealth needs to be distributed uh, in order to reduce climate change and save the planet. And uh, I, I think it's getting stupider and stupider. I, I'm, I'm seeing it as a joke. And the more I, I read about what's going on in Glasgow this very day, actually, the more optimistic uh, I get. So, uh, you know, it is the biggest fraud in the history of, of the world. The first serious science question I want to ask you is, when I look at models and mathematical equations trying to predict what the temperature of the planet's going to be decades forward, I find they, they don't use the sun as one of the primary variables. Uh, talk about the sun in the role of planet Earth's temperature. 
if I could add something prior to that, let me let me uh, say I did find in my research why they're doing this. What it is is when the um, Soviet Union fell apart, the uh, the problem that the progressives had is their uh, favorite uh, country, Russia, socialism, Marxism, had uh, collapsed on them. And they were in a kind of a, a funk. So what they did is they hijacked the environmental movement. And that's what got them into it. They decided to take that over and use that as the leverage. But getting back to your original question, the energy from the sun is what creates the temperatures on the planet, obviously. The energy coming from the sun, if we had no water in the atmosphere, the temperature on the planet would be minus 1.77 degrees Fahrenheit or 254.39 degrees Kelvin. And the planet would not be livable. What makes the planet livable is solely the amount of water in the atmosphere with the total effect being about 33.66 degrees centigrade or 58.82 degrees Fahrenheit. In round numbers, those numbers or those degrees, 33.66 degrees, is comprised of two parts. One, water in all its forms raises the global temperature to about 54 degrees F. Two, there is a small amount from the other greenhouse gases we get, another maybe 4.8 at the most degrees. Further current research indicates that almost all of the effects from CO2 has already been realized. What happened with the environmental movement is the Europeans got involved in it. And for whatever reason, they had a, a lot of uh, issues with CO2. Whether they knew what they were doing or not, it's really hard to say. But there was a big move on the CO2, obviously. So in 1979, there was an ad hoc committee formed in the National Academy of Sciences and its goal was to examine the issue of climate change from carbon dioxide. They published a paper. It was named Carbon Dioxide and Climate, colon, a scientific assessment. It's known now as the Charney Report, since Charney was the chairman of the committee. Since there were only two papers and simple climate models available on this subject of the effects of CO2 on global temperature, the committee had very little to work with. They gave validity to both papers, even though only one was peer-reviewed, and came up with a compromise between them, using the lowest value from one and the highest value from the other. This gave a low value of 1.5 degrees C and a high value of 4.5 degrees C, resulting in the key number used to start the process in the IPCC climate models of 3 degrees C plus or minus 1.5 degrees C per doubling of CO2, which is what the IPCC still uses today. This value is what determines how big an effect CO2 will make on the climate. Unfortunately, since 1979, 
scientific work by a large number of scientists have shown that those first values are way too high. The values today are more like 1.5 degrees C plus or minus 0.5 degrees C for a doubling of CO2. Using these more accurate values, the models would show, show no danger to the planet or humans. Climate change is a horrible scam being conducted for political purposes. Well, I'd like to revisit the comment that you made that I think many of our listeners are unaware of or long ago lost track of. And that is that when the Soviet Union broke up, uh, the leaders there saw that they could move into the environmental area and uh, continue the damage that they had uh, tried to create politically in the Soviet Union. And I know uh, the leader of uh, the Soviet Union at the time uh, left uh, Russia and took over an international uh, green organization. And uh, it is my firm belief that Russia finances have supported uh, a huge number of radical environmental groups uh, throughout the United States. I think they've been one of the major fin financiers until uh, Russia got, I mean, excuse me, until China got into the game. Uh, everything to do with uh, reducing the use of fossil fuels uh, on the scam that uh, you'll have less carbon dioxide emissions, which is a bad thing, uh, works to the advantage of uh, China. First of all, they, they make most of the uh, solar panels, uh, they make the blades for the, the windmills, and they say they totally believe in man-caused global warming and they're doing everything they can to prevent it, when in fact, uh, they're doing nothing to prevent it other than uh, making materials that we buy from them uh, uh, of, of no value at all. So uh, there is a huge uh, international scam of Russia and China uh, financing, frankly, I think virtually every environmental zealot organization uh, in the United States. So what started as, you know, maybe a little science became wholly uh, political. Oh, I, ag I agree 100%. Uh, when, this, when this happened, like you say, uh, when the USSR collapsed and China was still a hellhole, the Marxists in the EU and America lost their source of support and were in disarray. They decided to take over the environmental movement as, in particular, Greenpeace. Uh, one of the founders of Greenpeace, Patrick Moore, uh, didn't agree with what the Marxists were doing, and so he eventually left. Today, he gives presentations about climate change and how the IPC is 100% wrong, and the burning of fossil fuels is actually saving the planet from a slow death. What he does in his presentation, and it's one of the best ones that, uh, that I've been able to find uh, anywhere, uh, geologically, CO2 has been significantly higher, estimated to be over or around 7,000 parts per million. But as the plants used it for food, and the coral and shellfish and other marine animals use it to be, build their shells, over time, 
Did dead plant deposits turned into natural gas, coal, and oil? And did dead coral and shellfish, etc., turned into various kinds of rocks like limestone and marble? Over the millions of years this has been going on, it was reducing the level of CO2 in the atmosphere. During the last ice age, 12,000 years ago, CO2 got dangerously close to the point that the plants would start dying at, as you indicated, 150 part per million. And during that period of that last great ice age, CO2 was around 180 part per million. Luckily, the ice age ended and that didn't happen. Wow. You know, just going back to some of the technical aspects, in science and engineering, when you're working with heat, uh, you don't use the Celsius generally, do you? You use some other unit. Can you talk about that, David? Uh, sure. In science and engineering, if you are going to be working in heat, which is energy, a measure of heat is energy, which is measured in temperature, you must use pro proper terms. In this case, it's called Kelvin, K. And in Kelvin, absolute zero is zero degrees. In Fahrenheit, it's minus, 100, oh, minus 460 degrees. This is important because to the non-technical person using the wrong units, this will be misleading. For example, the base temperature used by NASA in their calculations is a 30-year period, 1950 to 1980. And they calculate that temperature optimally to be 14 degrees C, which is 287.2 degrees K and 57.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Today's temperature is around 14.9 degrees C, which is 288.01 degrees K and 58.75 degrees F. That means using K, Kelvin, the increase is only 0.003% using C, it's 0.065%, and using F, it's 0.027%. The only right one is Kelvin, 0.003%. So just using the right reference shows that there has been almost no meaningful change in the past 60 years in global temperatures. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about heat, you want to use the degrees Kelvin, and that's yeah. where you can calculate a percent change. Yes. If you're doing any work, meaningful work in heat or for science or engineering, you have to use key. Yeah. Well, all of our listeners certainly have read about uh, climate models for many decades now, but uh, I would guess most of them don't really understand what a climate model is. I, I suppose they recognize it's some kind of a, an equation that you plug uh, variables into that is supposed to simulate how the atmosphere works and how it impacts the temperature of the planet. Uh, in, in as simple terms as you can, David, uh, describe what a basic climate model would entail. Well, you pretty much described it accurately. 
the details of it gets really into the weeds, <laughs> but I'll try to keep it as simple as I can. Basically, when they created them, they were a huge science project. They used physics and mathematics to calculate a future temperature, which is only possible if you actually know all the variables and it can assign values to those variables. After 60 years of work, we still do not have the computing power to calculate all the equations that would be involved. And furthermore, we don't know or don't have any idea of what all the key variables are and how to model them. Now, the models work by assigning a three-dimensional grid over the entire surface area of the planet. And each of those grids contains a large number of equations. And these are how a lot if you're looking at a 3D grid. To reduce the computing time and size of the grids, they can't be too large, so the, accur to accur so the accuracy to predict meaningful climate results is questionable. The, the grids I believe they're using are maybe uh, somewhere maybe uh, like 100 kilometers square on the surface, and they go down into the surface of the planet uh, a, a number of kilometers and then up to the upper atmosphere. And if you know what calculating thermal energy for uh, finite element analysis and all of that, it, it takes a whole lot of equations. I mean, I, I couldn't even begin to say how many of them. And it takes a lot of time to calculate a change. And then what happens is that's in that single grid. The models work by assigning a 3D grid over the surface area of the planet that contains all the equations and all the variables. And it's a lot because it's a very large CD grid. Approximately 100 kilometers square, uh, going down a few kilometers into the surface and many kilometers up into the upper atmosphere. To reduce the, the computing time, the size of the grids can't, grids can't be too large. So the accuracy to predict meaningful climate results is questionable in itself. And remember, they're using the wrong values in these models because the doubling of CO2 isn't three plus or minus 1.5, but more accurately, it's uh, 1.5 plus or minus 0.5 degrees C. So they're really overestimating the effect of CO2. The models have been predicting disasters uh, either 10 or 20 years into the future, however you want to look at them, for over 60 years now. None of that ever happened. Of the many different models, the predictions are all over the place. So which one should they use? Today we are 10 years before disaster using the magic 2 degree limit of temperature growth, but that was changed under AOC to one degree C because they changed the base and we only have 10 years left to live or more, I guess it's seven or eight years now. Once we cross that point of no return, we are still gonna be two degrees below the ge geological average temperature of the planet. So what the hell is going on? Well, that's a, that's we, a good place to take our break. We'll okay. be back 
uh, just a couple of minutes. You know, I have to put a good word in for Healthy Cell. They have three lines of products that I've been using now for months. One is Immune Super Boost, which is a daily supplement designed to supercharge your immunity. And boy, do we need this now with COVID-19 and the revelation that the COVID-19 spike protein could be in our body for a year and a half after the illness or after vaccination. The next product is Focus and Memory. And again, this brain fog that happens in the long COVID syndrome and even occurs in the post-vaccination syndrome appears to be really calling for uh, a lot of the essential ingredients in the Focus product for healthy cell. And then lastly, my favorite product is the sleep product. The REM sleep uh, healthy cell product has a wonderful blend of uh, combinations of key elements to restore normal sleep architecture. It's very important. It's different than getting uh, put to sleep or forced to sleep. Getting a healthy sleep and having normal sleep architecture is quality sleep. And when we have good quality sleep, we have lower stress hormones during the day. We feel better. And I'm telling you, I'm not going to bed tonight until I've taken my Healthy Cell REM sleep product. So go to HealthyCell.com. And when you order, hit the promo box and type in out loud. That will give you a 20% discount off the products. Uh, try them. Uh, try a box. Try all three. And do your own self-assessment. I know I've, I've done it. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. David, the thing that puzzles me for a long time is if you read all the material that you have described so very well, why aren't people laughing? I mean, why would they worry about a degree or two of warmth when virtually everybody goes south for vacations? Uh, everything actually works better in a warmer climate. Nine times more people die because of uh, cold waves and, and heat waves. There is just nothing logical of their ability to, uh, to scare the public over the idea that the earth could be warming, and especially when the evidence for it really does not exist. I think you describe what a model is very well. It's a massive grid around the earth, broken up into small pieces, and you, you solve different equations for each chunk of the grid, and then you put them all together, and you come up with some kind of average uh, but none of them are of any value because we don't understand uh, all the variables that uh, affect the temperature of the planet. My, my favorite one is you would think we know the impact of clouds on the temperature of the Earth, and we don't even fully understand that. 
let alone dozens of other variables. And Willie Soon, a prominent uh, climatologist, uh, ran a calculation some years ago, and you had said we don't have the computing power to actually come up with an answer with all the variables. And he said the same thing. He said the most powerful computer on earth would take 40 years to generate uh, an answer. And with the listeners hearing that the earth is divided up in, into little squares and we run the equations in each square and you got to put it all together, uh, they can understand why, in fact, the biggest computer on earth would take 40 years to have an answer. So really everything that's going on, in my way of thinking, it's a joke. We, we know nothing of it. We only know historically that the temperature of the earth has gone up and down for millions of years. We know carbon dioxide levels have been much higher and, and lower. And what we learn in middle school is that carbon dioxide is uh, plant food and it's why uh, we're, we're greening the earth. One of the wonderful things that has gone on in the last uh, uh, 40 years with the increase in carbon dioxide is that a significant portion of the earth is greener than it was you know, 30 or 40 years ago. So what, what are your thoughts that we're continuously able to delude the public on such idiocy ideas? <laughs> well, it's a uh, basically it's the the government has gotten a hold of this, and they're 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 trying to use it to control the population. Uh, and if you look at this thing realistically, I mean, any any competent engineer or scientist would tell you that this this thing is a scam. It, it's they're using the wrong doubling number. The uh, uh, half the scientists that they used to use in the IPCC reports have quit because their their uh, concerns aren't uh, being recognized. Uh, when they do publish material in their uh, reports that come out, the massive report they has they have. Uh, they, the politicians do it. They cut out the scientists. They really have no say in this thing. And, and so everybody's been, you know, taught since, uh, I, I think my daughters went through it in the 90s, a climate change. Uh, it was very, very big in the 90s in the colleges. And uh, so those people are, 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 have been converted and everybody after that. Uh, and it, it's just, no one's being educated today is really the problem. They've, they've taken over the education department. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. It's funny. You know, I, I asked my daughter's biology teacher when she was in high school, when my daughter was in high school and I asked her, I said, do you teach both sides of the climate issue? And she was astounded. She said, no, of course not. We only teach the side that, that talks about, you know, the end of the planet. It would be irresponsible to talk about the other side. And of course, the rest of the parents at the parent-teacher meeting, they all nodded. So yeah, it, it's indoctrination. I had a technical question. It's concerning grid size. You were saying that the grid is typically 100 kilometers across. Is that right? 
I believe that's one of the more popular ones, yes. Yeah. So how do they actually measure or how do they actually model things that are smaller than the grid, like tornadoes, for example? Well, I guess they can't. <laughs> yeah, and yet tornadoes are incredibly powerful. Uh, you know, th that, uh, that just alone eliminates, they can't really do the clouds, they can't do local weather. They, they, they really, it's really just a science project is all it is. Mm -hmm. it, it, there is no way in hell you can actually determine what the temperature of the planet is. I mean, yeah. you have oh. to think about it. The sun is X number of miles away and the light hits the planet. Well, it doesn't hit the whole planet. It only hits the part of the planets facing the sun. And besides that, it because of the planet being a sphere, the, the, the radiation coming from the sun really only covers a, a spot right as at the spot would be calculated from the center of the sun to the center of the earth. And the earth is tilted on its axis. So there's a, there's a spot, a big spot, maybe covers a, oh, a quarter or a, maybe a third of the planet at most. And that spot moves up and down as, as the earth rotates around the sun. So part of the time it's above the equator, part of the time it's below the equator. And that's where the bulk of the energy hits. That's where that spot is because of the surface of the earth is a sphere. So at the edges, there's nothing coming in. So like on the poles, of course, you have six months of no light and some six months of some light. Well, that spot creates this heat around the equator, basically moving above and above and below it. And that creates a, a movement, a hot area that moves the air north to the poles. Now, the side facing the sun gets a lot of light. The side facing away from the sun gets none. So you also have different elevations. You have Denver very high up in the air, and you have New York City and the uh, uh, basically on the, the sea level. So as you go up in the up in altitude, the air gets colder. So in Denver, it's 50 degrees, but that same air, if it was over New York City, might be 70 degrees. So how do you even calculate one temperature for the planet? You know, I don't know that's even possible. Well, I but think it is absolutely not possible. And I think that uh, I'll be thrilled if most of our listeners, when our show is over, will feel confident enough about uh, the inadequacy of our knowledge to share with their friends that any prediction of what the temperature of the planet is going to be in a few decades or a century hence is nothing more than a joke. There's just nothing more to it. And the point Tom makes about uh, his daughter's uh, teacher uh, saying, oh, they would never uh, teach the other side of the story. That's the name of our show. The other side of the story is that human caused climate change is absolutely a joke. 
It has been indoctrination uh, for decade after decade. Again, I'm very optimistic that uh, there is a huge amount of uh, fatigue of all the absurdity. And as that clock in New York City you describe uh, counts down and gets below six years, four years, and so on, uh, people will realize what a joke it is. Of course, they'll come forward and say, oh, they miscalculated. We got another 10 years or 20 years. Uh, I'm hoping they're all laughing. I have written a, a series of articles uh, on the, uh, the Glasgow conference of 25,000 low-level bureaucrats getting together to try to redistribute wealth on the basis of, of climate change. And all of the articles are focused on uh, the fact that we should be listening, watching, hearing, and laughing, absolutely laughing. And I fact, uh, we have an article about your work on AmericaOutloud.com right now. And, uh, you know, uh, this uh, show will you, you can the four shots at hearing uh, your intelligence uh, answers, David, and then it'll be on uh, podcast. So I'm hoping we'll really have uh, a very significant impact on listeners, and they should be throwing their hands up uh, and laughing that we we basically know nothing about it. But I do mm -hmm. want to ask ask you. I know that you you're friendly with one of the the top uh, climate scientists in the world. Will Happer uh, from Princeton, and he he continues to work on it. But uh, I, I'm wondering if you could uh, capsulize where he feels some good work can be done. Well, uh, I've known Will for um, oh probably a dozen years now. Uh, we got involved together when I was doing my initial work on um, on how much how many solar panels and windmills would it take to convert to uh, not, not using fossil fuels and it's not a really hard uh, series of calculations the, the numbers are all available basically what it boiled down to was that there isn't enough surface area on the planet for them to do it <laughs> uh, you would have to re significantly reduce the uh, population of the planet to even think about turning all green. But anyway, I, I had been introduced to Will through a mutual friend, and I, I ran my numbers by Will, and he agreed with me. And we got to talking about climate and um, the work I was doing. So he actually invited me to his home in uh, Princeton, and I spent a weekend with him down there and he showed me the university and, uh, you know, where Eisenhower, where uh, Eisenhower, <laughs> Einstein, <laughs> yeah. Einstein. Uh, was and uh, we uh, we had a good time. Uh, he's the one that introduced me to some of the actual equations, the Stefan Bolden equation, and uh, re it really helped me out. Anyway, he's been working on this project for a long time. And last year, he and a friend published a, uh, a paper. And he had been work. they had both been working on uh, how to show with physics the, 
the actual process of how energy was captured on the planet. And it's, it's pretty complicated, uh, but I, I guess I'd try to simplify it. All the various molecules in the, in the atmosphere have vibration frequencies. They're, they're not just there uh, sitting around. They, they have a, a, a harmonic, so to speak. And the sunlight coming from uh, the sun, obviously, has various frequencies. You have ultraviolet, you have infrared, and everything in between, all the colors we see. Well, some of those frequencies resonate with some of the molecules in the atmosphere. Water being one, carbon dioxide being one, and some of the other gases as well. Uh, most of the energy just goes directly in and eventually goes directly out. But they wanted to use physics to show what the process actually was. And they finally figured it out and published the paper. What it shows is that, number one, the frequencies of light that are absorbed by water are virtually identical with those of CO2. And that's why there's a relationship between CO2 and water. Uh, but there's not a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere. So it's a small effect, even though it's an effect. What he showed with his calculations and model, and I have no doubt that what he did was correct. Will is a really smart guy. Um, is that probably somewhere around the 400 part per million, we hit the maximum effect of CO2 on the planet. And it really doesn't matter from that point on how much higher it goes, it really just won't have any additional effect. And he did a couple of different versions. It's a graphic thing, it's very good, but obviously in the radio, you can't see it. But 400 showed a certain effect. And when they changed the level of CO2 to, 600 part per million, it didn't move the graph hardly at all. So we know that we're pretty much at the limit of the effect of CO2. That is a huge, important factor for all of our listeners. I mean, Will Happer is, uh, you know, as smart as they come in, uh, in climate work and that his work led to the conclusion that, you know, 400 is it and any more CO2 uh, basically has no effect on the uh, temperature of the planet. That's a, that's a nice uh, factoid for people to mention. Since you brought up Einstein, I always enjoy every time uh, his name comes up, letting uh, people who know me or listen to me be, uh, find out that uh, I'm probably the only person they will ever know in any way who actually knew Albert Einstein. Wow. I was a, yeah, I was a student at Princeton uh, in 1953, 54, 55. And I was in a dormitory, uh, literally across the street from uh, where Dr. Einstein's home was. And he would be walking uh, to his office on campus in one direction. I would be walking to a class in the other direction. And so uh, we knew each other. Now, I'd be very honest here. Our acquaintance is what I call a nodding acquaintance. Uh, I'm 17 years old. 
uh, didn't have the nerve to uh, talk to Dr. Einstein, uh, I, I nodded my head and he nodded his head and we, we knew each other in that way. But it is uh, kind of humorous and funny because you will not uh, know many people. Even Will Happer uh, didn't get to Princeton uh, till uh, after that. And I'm also crazy enough that I have been uh, reading all his books on the theory of relativity, which are really difficult to understand, uh, and trying uh, to write a paper and, and go a step be beyond Einstein and make his work more understandable to a, a wider audience. Nobody thinks I'll succeed, and perhaps they're right, but I'm, I'm having fun with the project. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's great. great. Yeah, I had a question. You know, it strikes me as an, you know, I'm an engineer and I look at these things from an engineering perspective. It strikes me that temperature of the planet doesn't really matter because think of it this way. If half the planet got 10 degrees warmer and half the planet got 10 degrees colder, the average temperature would be, it wouldn't change. And yet that would be a catastrophe with that bigger gradient between two parts of the earth. So why does average temperature of the planet even matter at all? Well, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, besides the fact that they can't even <laughs> calculate it. Um, I mean, nobody lives in an average Earth. They all live in regions. Surely it's only regional temperatures that actually matter. Yes, yes. Um, well, that goes back to what I was talking about, the, the hotspot and uh, how it moves above and below the equator. And uh, that's where the, the heat comes from. And it, it really is uh, what drives the climate. It drives the, uh, uh, everything about what's going on. Because um, yeah, I find that I drive the enviros crazy when I say, I don't care what the average temperature of the planet is. <laughs> I, I give that example. And of course, when they're measuring it in tenths of a degree, I don't doubly care because I mean, they're measuring tenths of a degree of a parameter that really doesn't matter. <laughs> the other thing that that's kind of related to your question is the, the process that, that NASA uses. They have an odd way of looking at things, I, I guess is the way to explain it. And um, uh, for example, I'll, I'll start with an example first. Uh, if, if you have a glass of water and it's at 50 degrees and it, you, it, you warm it to 100 degrees Fahrenheit, is it twice as hot as it was? And if you said yes, you would be wrong. Because if I take the same exact situation and I'm in Europe, the glass of same glass of water is now not 10 degrees C, now 10 degrees C, and it's warm to 37.8 degrees C. So it's only 3.8 times as hot. Okay, so which one is right? Well, both, both are right and both are wrong because we're using different systems. To eliminate that kind of error, science and engineers use Kelvin, as we've talked about. So in Kelvin, the glass of water would be 283.2 degrees K, and if it would be warm to 310 degrees K. So only 1.1 times as hot. Does it really matter? Yes, in science it does, because it shows the proper relationship. 
Now we get to NASA. So we're talking about global temperature. NASA uses a different method called anomalies. A, instead of Kelvin or Fahrenheit or centigrade, which makes it even worse. So they created this base, I think I mentioned before, of 14 degrees C. And then they call it zero degrees A, which is an average temperature, which was the average temperature to, from 1950 to 1980. And then they take the current temperature of 14.8 C and they subtract the 14 from it, from the 14.8, leaving 0.8. Then they multiply the point E times 100, which then gives them 80, A. So 80 anomalies. That makes sure that no one knows what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> they actually use a formula to do that, but it's not worth showing. However, to the average person, going from 0A to 80A shows an extremely large increase in heat which in reality, since we're really talking about going from 283.15K to 283.5944K is a whopping increase of 1.0019 times more heat energy. So <laughs> did anything really even change on the planet? Nothing, it's really, it is a joke and I think, uh... I hope our listeners are confused in the sense that they realize the absurdity of everything they read from government uh, employees telling us what the temperature of the planet is and the environmental zealot groups uh, saying we're going to hell in a handbasket because the earth is going to be a degree warmer. The only thing people should be uh, responding to it all is with laughter. And mm -hmm. I think uh, we're going to see more of that uh, following the, uh, the meeting uh, in Glasgow, Scotland, which itself is uh, a, a huge uh, comedic play. Uh, that is why I'm so optimistic that uh, the, the world is becoming fatigued with the absurdity that uh, man controls the temperature of the planet through its emissions of carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting when I ask environmentalists and others, how much do you think the earth has warmed since 1880? They, oh man, it must be eight, 10 degrees. I say, no, just over 1 point something, 1 1.1, 1.2 degrees Celsius. And they look at you totally stunned. I say, well, are you concerned about a 1.1 degree Celsius change <laughs> in your room. I mean, it, you can't even feel it for most people. And so, you know, I think that one of the troubles is that they just have no concept of the scale of the warming that we're talking about, which is very tiny from a cold period. So it's been a good thing. Oh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, one of the things that I tried to do to make it simple was, was to create a graph that I, I think you guys have seen. Oh, yeah. We use it in our article. And um, if, if we take their actual temperatures that they publish, and we take the CO2 that is published, and we start in 1958, 
when we started to measure accurately CO2. And we set 58 as the base. So I averaged all the published temperatures of CO2 in 1958 and came up with a number. And I averaged all the temperatures that NASA shows for 58 and came up with a number. And I said, that's the base. So it's very easy when you have the base to each year create the new number and then make a, take a percentage of it. So from 58 to the present, I have a graph that shows the percent increase of CO2 and the percent increase of temperature. So you would think if there was a correlation that as CO2 went up, the temperature would go up. Maybe not exactly the same, but it would go up. Well, what you see in the graph is that CO2 goes from up 133% and the temperature goes up 0.35%. So what it shows on the graph is basically a straight line for temperature and this massive logarithmic uh, curve going up as CO2 gets higher and higher in, in the percentage. So you basically see visually there's no correlation. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, we got to wrap up there, David. It was really fun having you on. It's uh, certainly amazing to see that the actual numbers don't support a climate emergency. And yet we have countries and cities all over the world declaring a climate emergency, but they don't even understand the basics of what they're talking about. So this is Tom Harris and Jay Lair with our guest, David Pristash, a carbon dioxide expert, signing out from the other side of the story.